Okay, as I said uh, in the first hour, it's uh, really nice to be be able to be with you, even though Brent and April are gone and left us in misery. No, not at all. Uh, so it, it uh, unfortunately, they are the ones that were in misery. I'm, Brent is, I'm sure, not happy this morning. <laughs> he would have arrived in Portland about 2.30 a.m. your time, our time here. And uh, that, uh, uh, then getting up and preaching the next day, I'm sure is, uh, right about now, he's, 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 he's probably trying to figure out where his head is. So, <laughs> and as Dan said, you know how he, how he is with flights, you know, <laughs> or Emil said, you know, he is with flights. That's uh, that's the way that is. <clears throat> I've tried to get him to go to India with me once, and I said it's only 16 hours on the plane from New York to Mumbai, and he's like, ah. <laughs> not not happening. All right, uh, the text that uh, uh, Paul just read in Hebrews chapter eight indicates a number of interesting things uh, that sometimes we just don't give a lot of thought to. Uh, A couple of those uh, just start with just the idea that so often we have read verse 5 of Hebrews 8 and used it basically for a little different purpose than what uh, the Hebrew writer was actually intending. Uh, Quoting from Exodus 25, he, he makes this this point that do you see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And I know when I was growing up, that passage was tended to be used to simply suggest that uh, it is important that we always follow the Lord's pattern. Well, of course, that's true. It is important that we follow the Lord's pattern. But the Hebrew writer was actually using that for a little different purpose. When Moses went on the mountain... We know of the passages from Exodus 25-31 and Exodus 35-40, which basically tells us this tabernacle pattern. And it's very intricate and very detailed. And you and I in our Bible reading, we kind of go through it and our mind starts exploding as we're trying to figure out all these measurements and, and, and various things. But I, I was comforted when I realized that God basically showed Moses, here's what it looks like. I'm going to give you the dimensions, but here's the pattern. Here's what it looks like. Uh, some of you who uh, who remember what sewing is, uh, and, and some of you do. Uh, uh, these young ones, they probably couldn't spell that. But uh, uh, what sewing is, and I remember when my mother was a big sewer, and so we still are, my sisters, and there would be those thin little papers all over the living room floor and they would uh, they would lay those papers on top of the uh, the cloth and then they would cut it out and uh, and of course then they would take the thin papers and sew the thin papers into a dress and wear, wear the thin papers uh, of course not of course not the thin papers got put away or dumped or whatever they were uh, and that's of course the idea here is that God showed a pattern, a copy, of what was really the true realities of things. The copy was not intended to last any more than those little thin papers were intended to last or were intended for for the purpose of actually wearing. 
but they were for the intention of showing what the reality actually is. And that's exactly what God did with Israel. Here he shows them a copy and a pattern, but the Hebrew writer says there is far more to that. That was only a copy. And you can imagine these Hebrew Christians who have wedded themselves to the earthly temple, which would have been a copy, a pattern, uh, something to be discarded for the reality. And you can imagine them being wedded to that. And the apostle here telling them, it's a copy. (laughs) These priests are serving copies. They're serving only patterns. Why would you go back to that and, and not realize something so much greater that is in Christ? Well, that being so, there is a greater than picture even for us. That that copy and pattern was so important that Moses was warned, do not deviate from it. Why? Because it's a copy of what's real. And everything you're seeing in that tabernacle is a picture of reality. It's not the reality, but it is a picture of the reality. So I want you to pay careful attention to it, Moses. And then the Hebrew writer says, let's go to the reality. And the reality is, is if there were earthly priests who had to enter that tabernacle. And if there were all kinds of of various uh, pictures in that tabernacle of an altar of burnt offering and a labor and a table of showbread and an altar of incense and a candlestick and an ark of the covenant and, and a holy place and a most holy place, that all of those things are actually copies and patterns of something that is far, far greater. So when we think about Baptism, as this is what we're looking at today, and taking a look at how this is a type, that we would then expect that baptism is not something that just was invented in the New Testament. It was not something that just came about and suddenly, okay, everybody needs to repent and get dumped. And that's just all there is to it. That is not all there is to it. It is a reality that was shadowed and copied and pictured in a pattern from the Old Testament. And so I'd like to look at that with you uh, more carefully. There's a number of interesting points here that is made. I love what Nathan Pickup said recently in an article in talking about these things. He said, types are purposeful patterns in biblical in the biblical story that point to a greater reality in some person, event, or thing at a later stage in salvation history. So when God made the tabernacle, we would understand that He was making something that had a greater picture later in salvation history. And those types would have to do with people and have to do with things and and various uh, events that are connected then to us and the real point of salvation. And what's what's crazy about it is, is, is it's not something that we had to just kind of scratch our head and go, well, uh, I wonder what that means. He tells us repeatedly in the text that these are 
types, that these are patterns. He does it here in our text in Hebrews chapter 8 when he refers to it as a copy and a pattern. You will notice also in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 6 through 10. Notice the words here. These preparations have been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes. But he, he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this is the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. (laughs) Now, so... So he says, now now I want you to get this straight. When you look at the actual tabernacle or temple and when you see the service of the priest and you see how the priest only could go into the holy place and only the high priest once a year into the most holy place. He said, this is a picture. This is a symbol of things for the present age and the Holy Spirit was actually telling you. Back there in that temple picture that the way into the most holy was not yet known. But in so saying, the writer clearly states this was symbolic for us, for the present age. So we cannot read that. And in our Bible readings, uh, and I think Brent has made this quite clear. And and, uh, I, I just have to stop and say, this church here is the most intimidating church to preach for. Because uh, Brent has just taught you everything that he can think of in the Bible, and uh, not everybody gets that uh, that pleasure. And so I, I'm uh, I'm a little envious of you, and a little envious of Brent too. But this the enjoyment that uh, that you would have in getting that. But it is interesting that this symbolism is pictured here, and you see how beautiful that it is. In chapter ten of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer again makes mention of this using a different word. 10 verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year make perfect those who draw near. So you see the picture of two different words. He says a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the true form of of these realities. So stressing to these Hebrew Christians, when you look at your tabernacle and when you watch your priests go in and offer their burnt offerings and their fellowship offerings, and when you see them doing the sin offerings and then washed in the labor and then going into the tabernacle or temple, you need to understand that those were not the real, they're not the real thing. It's not the true form of those uh, realities. And so we see then over and again the writer, both in Hebrews and other places, as we'll note, making mention of this typology, as we would say. A type was seen in the Old Testament of the true reality uh, in the New. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. I have the slightest idea how if that's big enough. Well, not too terribly bad. But uh, most of you would know the pattern of the tabernacle. And if you just look at the, the tent part itself, you would see there's a holy place and then there's the most holy place. And when you enter into the holy place, 
You have on the right wall the table of showbread, 12 loaves of unleavened bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the, on the left side, the candlestick with its uh, various lamps that were uh, pictures of, of even the Garden of Eden and the light. And then the table of incense in front. And, and we immediately can think in terms of, well, God in this holy place has spiritual food indicating the feeding and spiritual feeding of the people he has which would provide for life and then the light and john light and life are always put together aren't they and then in front of the veil a access point to god as the priest would go in the people standing outside would pray and their prayers would go up to god as the incense would go over the veil and into the presence of god And so you see, of course, that picture and then into the most holy place where God's presence was and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the cherubim protecting the presence of God as it overshadowed that area and and the very picture that you might see in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. Well, that's all cute and pretty, but sometimes we forget that you don't just walk in there. And so back up, and the first thing you come to when you come into the courtyard is the altar of burnt offering. And here is where the sacrifices are going to be made. The burnt offering offered as an atonement, uh, the, the grain offering that would be burned on top of the burnt offering, and then the picture of fellowship and certainly two kinds of sin offerings that are made there. And when the priest would come to offer before anything else, blood had to be offered. And then after there's blood offered, then there's that labor. And washings had to be made. You see the parallel? We talked about it in the first hour. You see the blood and the washing of the labor, and those two things go together. And these are types. They're not the real form, but they are types of God's future salvation that he provides for us in Christ. So in Exodus 29, 1-4, through 4, when he talks about the washing of the priest and preparing them for service, the scripture says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. The original cleansing, consecration of Aaron and his sons was a full washing of water. After that time, anytime they were to enter the holy place, they would wash their hands and their feet at the altar. And then they would go ahead and enter. But that continual washing always took place before they could actually enter the holy place. I think it interesting that in the next chapter, as he concludes this very lengthy picture of how they were to be cleansed and and, and uh, consecrated, he says they are to do all this that they may not die. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just would you, would you think about how many times do you ever go to God in prayer and think, well, I need to be real careful here lest He kill me while I'm praying? How many times do you and I think of, well, we're going to come to worship this morning and I'm going to partake of the Lord's Supper and I'm going to remember Him And I hope I don't die because I have come before him uncleansed, unworthy, and not not provided for by him to be able to step in his presence. We We don't think about that, do we? It doesn't even cross our minds. 
And all of that because of the reality that we know of, that we have in Christ. And that we're not just walking by a labor and, uh, and washing our hands and our feet. And we're not splattering blood all over the, the base of an, of an altar and on people. But we have the perfect blood of Christ. And so it doesn't cross our minds that, well, somehow I'm going to walk into His presence. He's just going to strike me dead. And yet, and yet, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 8, Paul gives a little warning. He says, I will that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubt. That kind of holiness is still important to the Lord. It's a holiness that in one hand He provides for us through the offering of Christ and through the the water picture of cleansing. But at the same time, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16, You are to be holy, for I am holy. We are to live our lives in that kind of holiness because the picture here is... If you don't, you will die. And obviously, it's not like the Old Testament where you just drop dead at the spot, possibly. But that that would be required of you and I on on that day. So it, it is a significant point that a priest was not going to walk into that holy place until he had been cleansed. And if he tried to walk in without being cleansed by the water of the labor, he could, he could die. And that's what, that's what would happen to him. Now, before entering the temple then, we see this beautiful picture of a blood sacrifice and a cleansing. And as we said, we saw that picture before in the Old Testament of how that would take place. And, and let me just point out here just these two parts then. Of this salvation, the blood of Christ and the water of baptism is all placed together because God has purposely designed this to correspond to our salvation. Now, I have to say, this is something that I had not given a lot of thought to uh, in my studies in the past. But here's God in the Old Testament. And he starts right there in Genesis 1. And his first words out of his mouth are, let there be light. And we just kind of go, Sunday school, what's the first thing God made? He made light. Let there be light. We kind of go on. And God shows us later that He has purposely engineered everything we're reading in the Old Testament because it is a picture of what He's going to do in our salvation. And as John chapter 1, verse 1 burst on the scene, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, with, Word was God, and the Word was with God, and everything was created was created by Him. He was light and life, and everything of light and life comes through Him. And, and we go, well... God is engineering everything. So when you read your Bibles, we then understand that nothing is placed in, the, in our Scriptures, whether in old or new. Nothing is placed just incidentally. As there was a teacher recently of a Bible class who, who said, well, 
you know, this part of what was said here in the Bible, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit sometimes just throws things in for the fun of it. Uh, no. <laughs> I've never known the Holy Spirit to waste inspiration paper. That is just not his style. Uh, in fact, if anything, he is so concise that we write massive volumes to explain what he said in, in, in a few verses. And so there, there is a picture that goes far beyond that. And these are the things then that we should notice as we're studying our Bible. So when we read things like being saved by the blood of Jesus, we, we, would, we would all readily agree. But what if somebody came along and said in, in, in one of our churches, well, you don't need the blood of Jesus to be saved. Well, we would say, well, you're absolutely crazy. Of course we need the blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus is what uh, procures our salvation. But that is funny because somebody else might say, oh, we can be saved without baptism. Why can't we be saved without that cleansing? Well, that's no more possible than to say you're you're saved without the blood of Christ because these two pictures go together. They correspond. They are purposely engineered in the Old Testament to show us what our salvation is going to be about. That's exactly what we're reading in Romans 6 and verse 3 and 4 when Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice the parallel there? You have the baptism of water, and you have the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. The two are placed together. Studied with a lady many, many years ago. And our study went for about two hours. And for about two hours... The study went like this. She would say, well, I just can't see how baptism has anything to do with salvation. And I would read to her Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that you're, many of you have been baptized, baptized into Christ and into His death? And as soon as I would read it, she would take off and for about ten minutes... She would talk and yak and everything else about how she thought salvation was was only when you accepted Jesus in your heart and believed in Him and all of that. And I would wait and just patiently when she got done, I would say, well, let's read this again. Baptized into Christ and into His death. His death is where He shed His blood. And if you're baptized, if you're not baptized, you haven't been baptized into His death and you haven't touched His shed blood. It's pretty well said. And she'd go off for ten more minutes and talk about all the things she'd talked about before. And I would wait and then I would repeat the text. I literally went on for two hours. And I just kept going back and repeating the text. And she finally said, Well, I didn't mean not to understand salvation. It was just I didn't get it. And I said, that's okay. Everybody has a problem. (laughs) Boom. But it took two hours of reading that verse over and over again. Baptism and the blood of Christ go together. Cleansing and blood sacrifice go together. Why does it go together? Because God purposely engineered it that way. From way back in the tabernacle days, when you entered into the courtyard, you had to have blood first, and then you had to be 
sanctified or cleansed through the water. And then and only then could you enter into the holy place where you would then imbibe in the spiritual good food and the light and have a relationship with God through the, through the picture of the altar of incense. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, a passage we read in our first hour, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here is the cleansing of the inner man, the conscience, and not just the outer man, and the connection then with the blood of Christ. So to dismiss baptism is to not just say, well, I don't think that's true in the New Testament. It's to dismiss God's whole design, His engineering that He went back, His whole shadow and picture way back from the beginning. It would be just like my mom deciding to... to, 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 to to uh, sew this dress and then taking the the pattern and cutting it up into all kinds of different pieces and then saying she had sewn the dress that was intended. That's just that's just not the case. Let's go over back to 1 Peter now in chapter 3 and let's let's get a better feel of this context than what we did in our first lesson. In 1 Peter 3 and beginning at verse 18. Now, to to get the purpose of this, and again, this is sometimes hard for us because we have plucked verse 21 out of its context and just said, see, baptism saves you. But I, but I want you to see the greater purpose of what Peter was doing. The, the uh, audience of Peter are living in the northern Asia Minor area, and they have been apparently transplanted there, and they don't know anybody. And they're in an entirely different culture, and the culture thinks they're weird. We see that in chapter 4. They're strange in how they live. And they, on the other hand, are in a great minority. They preach the gospel to these people with little success, it seems, even though they are to be lights to them. And so Peter is comforting them, and they are going to suffer a lot of trials because of what they're going through. And Peter, therefore, encourages them through this by using Christ as an example. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, that is, in, in the Spirit, he went in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Well, let's stop there for a second and notice what he said. First off, when he says that Jesus in the spirit preached to those who are in prison, that is those who had died during the flood, He's not talking about Jesus when he died, went into Hades and and started uh, saying, I told you so, to those people. What he's talking about is a reference back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, where uh, Moses said, God, quoting God, my spirit will not always strive with man. His days will be 120 years. In other words, I'm not going to continue using my spirit to strive and preach to these people. I'm going to give them 120 more years. 
We know Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We know Elijah was, I mean, Enoch, excuse me, was a preacher of righteousness during those days and certainly probably others. God, through Jesus, through the Spirit, was preaching to those people who are, as he said, now in prison. The point of his text, though, is all the preaching that Christ did through the Spirit to those people would seem to be almost in vain. There were only eight souls that were saved. And here I thought it was tough to teach the gospel in Brentwood, Tennessee. (laughs) We do a little better than that. But there was only eight souls that were saved. And he's encouraging them. And in the process of encouraging them, he shows them that their salvation was identical to the salvation in the days of Noah. And he makes that parallel. Who was saved? How was Noah and his family saved? In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. They were saved then by water. But here's what I want you to see. Notice the wording of verse 21. He said in verse 21, Baptism which corresponds to this. Now just notice those words. And that's translated a lot lot of different ways. I remember growing up with the old King James Version. The like figure. (laughs) The like figure. (laughs) The baptism saves you. Well, here, look at all the different translations here. ESV uses corresponds. NIV says baptism symbolizes. This is symbolized. This was a symbolism of baptism. New King James is an antitype of baptism which saves you. The New Revised Standard Version. And baptism which prefigured this saves you. Wow. I I love how the New Revised said it that way. Very clearly pointing out that when God chose to save Noah through the waters of the flood, He was choosing to save him that way purposely. Because it would later prefigure what God would do and how He would save us. Now, you can imagine somebody saying, I just think it's absolutely silly that God saved Noah in an ark through a flood of water. That's just dumb. I think He should have saved him just by lifting him off the earth, flooding everything, and setting him back down. Well, la-di-da to you. God purposely engineered this one. And I'm sure He doesn't appreciate any more than He would appreciate somebody questioning Him of how He would save Noah in an ark through the waters of the flood. I'm sure He doesn't appreciate somebody today saying, questioning Him on how He is going to save us through the waters of baptism. It is prefigured. It was previously engineered this way so that we could visualize it and see it. I can remember growing up with... Folks would, would say, well, tell me why you're baptized. I don't know. He just said it. Well, now I know. Now I can go back and go, he pre-engineered that. He made it that way so that I could see it better. And now I can see how he did it. He did it in the tabernacle picture. He did it in the flood picture. He gave all kinds of pictures So that when I got to the New Testament, 
by the way, I didn't skip the Old Testament. When I got to the New Testament, I would go, voila! That makes sense. He's been saving people by the cleansing water for thousands of years. It ought to make sense that He's going to do it in a greater way for us today, but He is still going to use the fulfillment of the prefiguring that He did in the cleansing that took place then in the Old Testament. God was intentionally pre-planning this. Uh, Let's take a look at one other text here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we notice beginning here at uh, the first, just the first six verses. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all drank and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now watch verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So would you notice this, these words, these things took place as examples for us. It's interesting that the word for examples here in the Greek is typos. Well, that's, even us English people can understand that word. It's, it means in the Greek a figure or counterpart or an anticipated figure or type. And so what he is doing here is he is saying, first off, your salvation, you Corinthians, and of course us today, your salvation is just like their salvation. It was, it was exactly the same. The Genesis generation, uh, the Exodus generation were saved in a similar way. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses like we would be baptized into Christ. And they were covered by the water and the cloud baptized into Moses in, by the cloud and by the water. It was a similar kind of thing. And they partook of the same spiritual drink and the same spiritual food. And all of that came together to show us our salvation. And at the end of this text in chapter, in verse 11, he uses that word typos again. And this is a pattern for us. And I, in fact, it is important in verse 11 of this text. When he says, now these things happened to them as example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Why, why was this? Why was that all written down in the Old Testament? It was written for our instruction, for you and I, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So here then is the conclusion. The Exodus generation was a type. It was a picture He had the picture of Noah. He had the picture of the tabernacle. He has the picture of how he saved the people out of Egypt. And it was a prefigured, pre-engineered type. You know, God could have... Remember remember when when God said, okay, uh, everybody get out, you know, Passover time and the death of the firstborn and all that. And he says, exit. And God purposely has them go south to get trapped by the Red Sea. Remember that? That's a silly direction to go. You're going to Canaan. You should have gone north. And instead, they go from Goshen. They're heading south. 
And God has them trapped up against the Red Sea. God, what, what's the matter with you? I'm prefiguring the salvation that's going to happen in Christ. And I'm going to save them through water. That's what I'm going to do. And when I do, I can later in the New Testament use that to show that salvation today is the same kind of salvation that was then. And he engineers it in order to teach us of our salvation. Now, somebody says, well, I think Israel was saved before they crossed the Red Sea. Well, why don't you go back and read that story again? They were not saved before they went through the Red Sea. They were not saved before they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had to go through the water. They had to get to the other side. And only then were the Egyptians dead. And only then was salvation uh, given to them. So God designed these historical patterns to picture our salvation. And for somebody to say that the gospel message somehow just occurs and we need to kind of argue about whether or not we need to obey things like baptism is to miss the whole point of our salvation. Without the story of Israel, this gospel message simply does not make sense. Well, possibly you're someone who has not obeyed that gospel message and maybe have not even understood it the way that We have seen it this morning. But this is a fulfillment of the way God has always pictured His salvation. The need to be cleansed through the waters of baptism. Obviously no salvation in the water itself. But that cleansing connects us. As God is the one who sprinkled clean water on us. As God who is washing us in the blood of the Lamb. And through His death and atonement. We have our salvation. So if there's any way we can help you in that cause, we urge you to take that step right now while together we stand and while we sing.